It's easy to trust Jesus when we're sitting on that windswept green hill and he's feeding us and he's speaking kind things. And we're like, oh, this is amazing. It's so great we're together. Very different thing on the storm. You know, you're in the boat, Jesus is sleeping, and the waves are crashing over the boat and you feel like you're going to die. Totally different. But that's when you see what your faith is really made out of, is when you're in the storm, when you're in the trial. Jesus taught how some hear the word with joy and receive it. They spring up like a flower or a plant when the seed is in the ground. But when the sun comes out, because it has no depth of root, it begins to wither and it dies. So those whose faith is genuine, however, the sun can hit it, the wind can swirl it around, and uh, it can endure that and be fruitful. And opposition often works to turn our attention to the Lord. So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4. And God's people had united to do a great work. God was with them, but it did not mean it was easy. We might think that if God is with us, who can be against us? Well, people can be against you. They cannot prevail or overcome you because we're more than overcomers in Christ. But there surely is opposition, right? There are enemies that we face. And as work progressed, Nehemiah and the people, they faced new challenges. It's like the higher the wall grew, the, the different tactics the enemy began to use against them. And even the workers themselves, because the job, they saw it was big and they saw their strength waning and they doubted if they could continue. So there was opposition from outside and there was discouragement inside the camp. And we have to deal with both of those. I like that God allows the opposition. It shows that he's much more concerned than just building a wall or fortifying the city. He's wanting to change the people who are building. He wants to do something in their hearts too. He wants their faith to grow as he does ours. So are you facing discouraging circumstances in your life? Galatians 6, 9, it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. It's good for us to realize that we've lost heart. We've given up part of our life to some discouragement and to realize that we need a new start. We need help from God, and we're willing to do anything so that he can be glorified and our strength can be renewed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for this message today. Just pray, Lord, that you would have your way in each one of our hearts. You'd open our eyes to see. It would be riveting as you take us through your word, as you show us things about ourselves. And as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, help us to see ourselves in truth, that we desperately need you, that we need you to support us, to help us, and that who do we have but you? Who is there to trust or to fear but you? because you are a great God, awesome in power, mighty to save, loving and kind. We throw ourselves upon your mercy, Lord, and ask that you be honored today as we remember you in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, But so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? 
Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. After Nehemiah entered into the territory of Jerusalem, Sanballat, he was the governor of Samaria, it said he was deeply grieved that anyone would seek the good of the people of God. Later, when he, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard that they said, we're going to rebuild, they laughed. They thought it was the biggest joke ever. These guys, what are they thinking? They're not going to do that. But then when they started actually organizing and doing it, they became angry and very indignant. That's what our passage says here, furious, and they mocked the people. They said, what are these guys doing? And notice who he's saying it to. He's saying it to his brethren and the army of Samaria. So he's bad-mouthing them in front of everyone in, in Samaria. And uh, how do you suppose Nehemiah heard about this? Because someone told him. Somebody told him. I mean, Nehemiah wasn't there. He was working in Jerusalem. But someone came with this message and said, do you hear what's happening out there? They are just mocking you guys. They're saying you're feeble. They're saying, what do you think you're doing trying to rebuild this wall? And he's talking to an army. Who are we next to them? We're not an army. We're not equipped. The Jews didn't need to be reminded that they had burnt stones to deal with that they had rubbish piled up outside the walls, that for over a hundred years these walls had laid in ruins and good men and women before had not been able to rear up this wall. And, and like all mockery that stings, there is a, a bit of truth in it. You notice that? Compared to those in Samaria, they were feeble. They didn't have the resources. They did have those stones as a testimony of their failure and their oppression just laying there. And uh, then in Tobiah, he's, he's piling on. He knows the goldsmiths and the, uh, the perfumers and the priests and their sons and their daughters are working on this wall. And he says, man, if even a fox walks on that wall, it's going to fall over. Now, a fox is about five to seven kilos, very light on its feet, hardly leaves a track on the ground. And so he's saying, if the lightest animal were to jump on that, it would just fall over, like, oh, pathetic. It's a ridiculous thing to say, but it has the potential to discourage someone, even who has a mind to work. When he came to Jerusalem, Nehemiah had wisely brought letters from King Artaxerxes that gave him permission to enter the land and to do this building project, to even get the materials for building. Sanballat and Tobiah had no legal authority to stop the work. But they sought to undermine the work through discouragement because they could make the people quit all by themselves. They didn't have to have a legal notice to make them stop working. But if they could discourage them through mockery, the people would quit and the job wouldn't happen. Right? It's a good result for them. This is an effective tactic that Satan uses too. Who's described as a thief, a liar, an accuser, and a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't have the authority to stop God's work, but he can certainly discourage God's people to give up and to quit and to stop pursuing Christ. They can almost give up without a fight. He didn't have to send the armies, right? Sambalat could have kept all his armies there. If Nehemiah is listening to this and he takes it to heart, he says, oh yeah, what chance do we have? They could have given up. Nehemiah did not give up. 
Whenever we have a mind to work for God, when there's something that he puts on our hearts to do, to come alongside and to help, he's going to seek to deter us, to distract us, to confuse us, and he'd have us focus on obstacles rather than God, our pain instead of God's promises, and our past failures rather than the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. He wants us to look at all the wrong things. I like what Pastor David Guzik said. He says, where faith believes God and his love and promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst and tends to pretty much forget about who God is and what he has promised to do. I say, that's true. When I'm discouraged, that's what's happened. There's been a shift of my perspective where I'm focused on the obstacles, I'm focused on the mockery, I'm focused on, well, you know, what they're saying is pretty true. I am feeble. We've got pretty poor building materials here. There's a lot of rubbish to clean up. It hasn't been done before. Why should it happen now? How is it that one, the same thing that discourages one person can fuel the resolve of another to even work harder? Perspective. Two people can face the same obstacle. To one person, it's an obstacle. To the other one, it actually elevates their game. It helps them to push harder. Mockery taken to heart, it causes us to forget about God, but it can also drive us to seek him if we trust the Lord. Verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah heard this report, the mocking words coming out of Samaria, but he did not lose heart. He did not send a delegation to Samaria. He didn't have a pep talk to rally the troops and say, well, I've heard this, guys, but he doesn't do that. What we read of him doing is immediately praying because he's looking to God, the one who called them to do this work, the one who was going to Uh, that the one they were joining together with in doing it. So he looks to God. He's like, God's brought us out of Babylon as his precious possession, almost like his spoil. He's putting us through the fire, but we are going to endure. We are going to build. He has brought us to this point. He will see it to the conclusion. Even though it was a massive building project. Nehemiah prayed in line with the principle that what a man sows, he will reap. It says in Proverbs 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. You guys have probably seen those videos, or perhaps it's happened to you, where there's someone by the pool, and you see someone sneaking up, they're going to shove them in the pool. Well, somehow, I don't know how it happens, but they end up falling in, and the person they wanted to fall in doesn't. Uh, or, you know, the guy's trying to push his dog into the pool and, and loses the balance, falls in. And it's that principle that whatever you sow, you're going to reap. If you're trying to throw people in the pool, eventually you're going to be in the pool, one way or the other. So if you're digging a pit to capture people, to trap people, you're going to fall into your own traps. Eventually, it's going to happen. From our perspective, it looks like people get away with a lot. And we're like, doesn't God see what's going on here? Isn't he doing something? And Nehemiah's like, God, don't blot out their sin. Make sure you remember what what they've sown and what they deserve. But see, Nehemiah is praying as a man under law. We are to be praying as Jesus said. 
God is going to remember the sin of other people. He's already told us that he, he doesn't blot it out. However, uh, and if you read the Psalms as well, many verses where it says, return the iniquity of the, the sinner upon their head, and, and Lord, don't forget what they've done. Since the gospel has been revealed through Jesus, instead of calling down fire on our enemies, we're to pray for their good. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, we read of what our Savior said. And we'll be remembering his sacrifice as we take communion later. But think of it, as he's hanging on the cross, he says of his tormentors, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, God, remember what they've done here. Visit upon them to the hundredth generation. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, Father, forgive them. And that's the heart of love that we are to have for others. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you appreciate the fact that God has blotted out your sins? He has put them as far as the east is from the west, not to be remembered or recalled to mind ever again. I appreciate that. And so should I pray concerning someone else that their iniquity not be blotted out? What am I doing? I'm digging a pit for myself. God has given me grace. And by his mercy, we can walk in it. And we should give that same grace to others, even when we're hurting even when we, 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 aren't, we don't feel like it's fair what's happening or it's just. God is just. He will see justice done. So I don't need to pray, God, give them justice. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and God, be merciful to them too. It's good to pray, but what do we do after praying? Sometimes when you say, uh, you say hey, think about this, or um, why don't you do this? And, and maybe our response is, well, I'll pray about it. But then that's kind of the end of what we do. Well, Nehemiah, he prays about it, but he says, and we kept working. We finished the wall halfway to half height. Pretty big job. So praying is not an excuse to deny our responsibility to obey, to keep taking those practical steps of obedience to God. There's this connection between faith and obedience we see throughout the whole Bible. It's like, when the children of Israel uh, were told to walk around the city of Jericho. They were not to speak until the command came, and then they were to shout. And you go, okay, well, if God's going to fight our battles, can't he just do it? Right? I can just kind of sit back and kick back and let God do what God does. I can't beat this, this enemy. Let him do it. No, there was a connection between them doing their part. That was to walk around the city. There was no visible change happening to the walls as they're doing that. And they had to walk despite the insults probably being hurled at them, the, 
the debris flung at them from those who were watching them on the walls day after day without even speaking a word. And I think that's the craziest part about it. It's one thing to walk, but another thing to be silent. That's hard, isn't it? When you really want to just shout back, hey, wait for what's coming in six days. You don't want to be up on that wall. (laughs) You know, kind of, we'll get them. No, quiet. Don't even speak a word until I say, shout. And then then the city's yours. So obedience. Sometimes it's to walk. Sometimes it's to be silent. God will do what he has said in his time. He doesn't need us, but he delights to employ us in his service. Feeble people through whom his strength shines. Nehemiah 4, verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. As the wall was connected, the gaps were filled. It's raised up to half its height. It seems the anger and the enemies grow, grew exponentially. First we read of three guys. Now we read of whole groups of people, Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites, all gathering and saying, all right, we've got to create confusion. We have to attack them. We have to cause this work to cease. I'm reminded of Proverbs 11:21. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. Now, it's very natural that when you read something in the Bible or you think about someone else's life, perhaps in the comfort of a study, that the first thing you do is you think about a scripture that may speak to that problem. But when it's actually happening to you, and the enemies are actually all around you, and they're conspiring against you, and you're aware of this, that's probably not going to be your natural first choice, right? We don't go, well, what does the Bible have to say? What does God have to say on the matter? We just go, what are we going to do? Oh, we got to have a plan. And we start scheming just like they're scheming, except we're not including God in it at all. We can be like the disciples. Uh, Jesus, he has plans to feed 5,000 people. He says, hey, guys, you feed them. We go, well, we've got a lad here with five loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? God knew what he was going to do. And it's good when we look to him. Nehemiah's response, he does two things. He says, first, I prayed to God. Number two, I set a watch against them day and night. 24-hour guard. But he prayed first. He didn't just confront the issue from a solely spiritual perspective, say it's all in God's hands, we're just going to pray and keep working. They taught it, they, they, they looked at it, as a real threat. They, they uh, looked upon it as legitimate. He didn't just casually dismiss it. It's like you may entrust all your possessions to God, but it's still wise to lock your car when you leave it in a car park. There's that combination. Prayer should not replace our efforts, but as we pray, God will make our labor effective. They don't replace one another. They work together. Verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Now I enjoy watching rugby and gridiron. 
I've observed a dynamic I like to call a tale of two halves. Are you familiar with this tale? One team jumps to an early lead. They have a cracker of a first half, but they come out the second half complacent, playing conservative, and end up losing because they really took their foot off the pedal. Instead of trying to win, they started playing not to lose, and they lose, even though they had this huge advantage at the beginning. And this milestone of the walls being brought to half height, it brought new challenges. It brought new potential discouragements because for the first time we see the discouragement coming from people within the building project. It's not Sambalot. It's not Tobiah. It's people saying, we can't do this. The workers, the people of Judah, they say, there's too much rubbish. We're getting weaker. This isn't happening. It's one thing for enemies to mock. It's another thing when God's people, they begin to focus on the failures, the obstacles. They lose confidence in God and even suggest giving up. That is more disheartening than an attack from outside quite often. Matthew Henry said concerning Christians, he said that we have many times as much ado to grapple with the fears of their friends as with the terrors of their enemies. In Australia... Until now, um, in the fellowship here, concerning opposition from government or people in the strata, or we haven't had protests, we haven't had vandals break the windows down, we haven't had people threatening us with firebombs if we if we meet here and we proclaim the word. We haven't faced any of that sort of opposition. Most potential discouragements that we face are probably from professing Christians that we're following Jesus with. That's where a lot of discouragement can come. And it's not to speak poorly of our fellow Christians, because when you live with a, in a close proximity with people, there is a lot of opportunity for conflict and friction, right? Because you know that person, you're living with them all the time. So it's not to say that, you know, it's all our fault. Oh, we're so terrible in each other. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... Um, Discouragement can come from outside a fellowship. It can come within a fellowship. And it can even come within yourself. Like we can just look at ourselves and say, well, is the discouragement really coming from outside or from my own doubt? We have to be prepared for this, that this is, this is a reality. The people were experiencing burnout. They perceived their strength was waning. And they said the accumulated rubbish was hindering their progress. On top of that, they've got these adversaries saying, we're going to sneak in and kill you when you're not looking. You better be ready. And they were just, they were trying to be vigilant, but they were exhausted. They were tired of it. Now, whether you work as a chef in a kitchen or with bricks and mortar, labor always generates rubbish. It always happens. I think people generate rubbish, right? We just do. (laughs) We may consume a lot, but we also create a lot of rubbish. There's a point that we must recognize when that rubbish is starting to hinder future progress. And so from that, for that reason, we have to pause from our cooking or our baking or our building and say, okay, I would love this wall to be built to the top right now, but I have to stop building for a second to clean up all this rubbish that's accumulated It may have been there before my time, or it's here now, but we need to get rid of it so we can have access to build. 
It's a good picture of our labors for Christ as well, because our minds can be littered with the offense of fellow Christians, filth from the world, experiences that have discouraged us. These things start piling up. And we think that, you know, time is going to, alone, going to fix a problem. Well, there's a lot of biogradable things that take forever, it seems. I mean, if you have like a stack of letters, let's say, in your cupboard, how long do you suppose it'll be until they're dust and illegible? Probably beyond your lifetime, right? So you have to actively do something to get rid of them. It's all fine to talk about growth, even working to grow. But remember, growth of plants is stimulated by pruning. It's pruning that causes the growth. It only happens after the rubbish is cleared away from the foundations that we can start building on top of them. In my mind, I see the people of Judah, they're working on their portion of the wall, and all around them, there's these burned stones. It's like memories of past failures, those discouragements that have, those obstacles that have just stood there. And during the night watch, he said, I set a, a watch over them night and day. I can just see them stumbling over these rocks, kicking them, hitting their knees on them, and just going, ugh, like, these things are always in the way. And they're so focused on building a new life, building this, this wall, that they just assume these burnt stones are part of it. They've been here. They're huge. Take time from doing the wall to, to getting rid of them. But then it occurs to them, we can get rid of these things. We can cart them down to the Kidron Valley. We can get rid of them. We don't have to be stumbling over them in the dark anymore. We don't have to be navigating them continually, trying to get our wheelbarrows through and just running into obstacles. We can clear it out. We may have to take a few days off of building, and it's going to take effort, and it's going to be hard, but we can get rid of these stones and this rubbish to expose the foundation so that we can continue building. We can actually get to the spot we need to so we can build. Those old stones needed to be carted away. They needed to take a break from building. They needed to join together because one person couldn't do it and expend the effort necessary to get rid of those stones. It reminds me, a practical example, after Hezekiah became king in 2 Chronicles 29. Now Ahaz, his father, had polluted the temple. He actually locked the doors. He, He sealed them. So the temple's full of rubbish, no sacrifices, the menorah is not lit, it's a cold, polluted place. And there's, there's idols everywhere. Well, when Hezekiah became king, he got rid of the idols, he said, let's open up that place, and instead of immediately jumping into sacrifice and lighting the menorah and baking the bread and laying out the incense and getting the, the holy anointing oil dialed in, they first had to set upon sanctifying the Levites, because the Levites were not prepared to do the work. They were not sanctified. So they had to sanctify themselves first. Then they had to just get the junk out. took eight days just to get all the rubbish that was in the temple out of the temple, carted all the way down to the Kidron Brook. Then it took eight more days to sanctify everything. All the articles, make sure they were put through the fire, made sure they were cleansed and the water was put on them, that they were actually fit to be used in God's service. So they had to do all this stuff before they could have that that glorious moment when the fire was lit, the, the incense is filling the place, it's clean, it's prepared. 
The point is, the Levites and the men of Judah building the wall, they needed to remove the rubbish before they could effectively engage in their calling. They both had to do that. They were called to build this wall. Too much rubbish. So they had to stop building the wall to remove the rubbish so they could build the wall. And so it is for us. We're first called to be sanctified ourselves. We're to be born again, to to repent of our sin, to put it away from our lives. We're also called to cast off weights, those impediments that hinder us from following Jesus. And if we hold on to discouragement or bitterness or regret, if we have resentment, it's going to impede our progress. And no matter how much we want to grow, it's like we're going to keep stumbling over those rocks in the night. So we've got to get those rocks moved away. And we can't do it alone. Things build up in our lives, we ruminate over them, we trip over them rather than destroying them. Is there something that you trip over and you keep tripping over it? Well, I encourage you to get rid of that thing. Take it to the Brook Kidron. You don't have to look at it anymore. You don't have to stumble over it in the dark. Move that thing through the power of God because he's going to help you. We'll see how we do that. As we keep reading, verse 12. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah hears of conspiring enemies. And then these Jews, they travel from afar, from the north, from the south, from the east and the west, and they warn him of this potential threat that the enemy poses. Hey, where, any, anywhere you turn, they're going to be upon you. Hmm. And it's true, the threat was on all sides. Sambalat, he's from the north. Tobiah and the Ammonites from the east. The Arabians from Kedar in the south and the Ashdodites from the west. They were literally surrounded by enemies. Now, perhaps it's a bit cynical, But I find it interesting, these Jews who did not feel compelled to aid in the building of the wall felt compelled to make this trip to tell Nehemiah what they were up against. Ten times. He's like, they told me ten times. I'm sure they told him more than that. But he's like, guys, I've heard this day after day. Oh, you're from Ashdod. Oh, you're from, you know, Kedar. And you've got the skinny on what we're up against and how hard it's going to be and the risk that we take in continuing this progress. Like, why didn't they say, hey, guys, just want to encourage you. I want to help build. Or I'm going to take up a spear. You need a night watchman? That's me. We don't read of them saying that at all. We just read them, fellow Jews, saying how hard it is. The danger. Kind of warning, but not putting their hand to the work. That can be discouraging, right? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if they did help, but whatever their motive, Nehemiah takes it seriously, doesn't he? He says, we set a guard against them. I set them according to their families, so people have a very vested interest in protecting, not these stones, not like we want to keep this wall together, but I want to protect my family. And they were provided the necessary weapons. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Interesting, he doesn't say fight for yourself. He says fight for your brethren, 
your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And this is the key to our passage. Nehemiah does not look to the nobles. He does not look to the leaders or the people for encouragement or support. He looked to the Lord. He looked to God, the one who had called them, the one who had supplied their needs. He was a great and an awesome God. And he gave three commands to the people. He said, do not be afraid of enemies. Number two, remember the Lord and fight for your brethren. Even as love is a choice for a child of God, so is fear. At least 50 times in Scripture, God has told his people, or through others, saying, fear not, do not fear, do not fear. And through God, we don't have to fear. You ever notice that people don't fear the same things? You know, someone in here may be deathly afraid of clowns. Someone else terribly afraid of spiders. Maybe maybe you're, you have a fear of cockroaches. You see one, and you're like on top of the table. Well, the other day I saw this girl who has like cockroaches as pets. She's named them. She's playing with them. She's holding them. They're like all over her. And, and it's just, so it's like, hold on. If that little girl is not afraid of cockroaches, should I be afraid of cockroaches? Do my fears have to be what they are? Could they be different? Do I have to give place in my life to this fear? Even in a natural sense, we, we can say, well, no, we don't have to have that fear. But when you bring God into the picture, that just blows all fears out of the water because who is to be feared but God? Because he is great. He is awesome. And if our focus is on him and not the thing that I fear or my fear itself, I realize that in him I have strength. That my identity is found in him, I can cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. The children of Israel could be courageous as they stood facing armies. Okay, These are just ordinary people facing armies that are all around them. And they kept building because their confidence was in God. If you could turn to Psalm 91, starting in verse 1. We read this awesome passage of what God does for his people. Psalm 91, verse 1 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from perilous pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. What a picture of those who take refuge in God. These people didn't even have a whole wall. Walls were what you took refuge behind. Well, they have half a wall. And they are standing strong in the Lord. Because God was their refuge. It wasn't this wall that they were putting their trust. It was God that they were putting their trust. But they were doing their part to be aware and to look to God and to fight for their brethren. 
Perhaps your fears, your discouragements, they seem like those huge rocks. I mean, when I say a rock you're tripping over, it's not really probably a a perfect picture because these stones are as big as a car, okay? Massive stones. Stones that you couldn't even, if you're standing on the ground, you may not even be able to see past them looking outside the city. Big things. And you say, well, how can I move that? And maybe you've tried and you failed. Well, it's in remembering the Lord through faith in him, that he is a great and awesome God, those fears, those discouragements, they begin to dissolve. It's like they wear away, and they're gone. Like, wow, because we trusted him. It was time to cart those stones away. God was doing a new thing in Israel. He did not want them dwelling in the past defeats. And God will do a new thing in your life when we're ready to cooperate with him when we realize that we really, really need a new start and we've given place to discouragement. So I ask you, do you want a fresh start? It's a little different than saying, do you need a fresh start? Because if you need something, you're going to be willing to do something to obtain that. It's like someone who's thirsty. If you need to get a drink, it's a little different than, ah, a drink would be nice, right? Quite different. So I pray that we would realize we need a new start, that we need to be free of the discouragement that we've given a place in our life. I'm convinced we actually like, it doesn't make rational sense, but we like keeping relics of the past along, parts of our old lives that are now hindering progress in following Jesus today. For whatever reason, we do that. When we remember God, we can honestly say, I don't need to take refuge behind these burnt stones. God is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my shield. We don't have to be afraid of terror by night or destruction by day. It doesn't matter because God is with us. Whatever can endure the fire, God will purify through fire. And I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to bow down before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Because they feared God, they were not afraid of their furious king. They weren't afraid of looking bad in front of all the other satraps and governors. And they were not afraid of a fiery furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. And they said, King, we don't even need to answer you in this matter because our God is able to deliver us. Even if he doesn't, we will not bow to it. Through the violence of the flame. And what comes later is even more amazing than this courage. The violence of the flame, it killed the strong men that that bound and threw them into the furnace. It killed them. And they fell into the flames unhurt. And as Nebuchadnezzar looked on amazed, he saw a fourth walking with them, whom he likened to the Son of God. In the furnace is where Jesus met with his faithful followers. And by God, the flames were not given power to hurt them or to even cause them to smell like smoke. But it did three things. The fire killed their enemies. It burnt their bonds so they were free. And it opened King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes that there was a God greater than the God he had made and a God more powerful than his own laws and commands. It opened his eyes to the truth of God. And the fiery trial that God has given you, he's ordained it to try you, 
to set you free from discouragement, to set you free from fear, and that you would realize God's worthy of worship and other people would too. They'd say, man, that person's walking with Jesus. I have no other explanation. Jesus is real in that person's life. Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Those people who could have given a place for fear in the night and in the day, as they labored on those walls of Jerusalem, they were blessed because God was with them. They were protected. And if we're reproached for Christ's sake, blessed are you. Even as we can give unto the Lord, we can be reproached unto the Lord. And we say, Lord, you say, if I do this to the least of you, you've done it unto unto you. Well, Lord, I'm receiving this painful thing even as you took that scourge upon your back. I receive it for your sake and your glory. I will not be discouraged. I will have joy in you because you are my king. And so it's a great Uh, response really for us to remember our great and awesome God, how Jesus was willing to suffer at the hand of sinners. He knew the victory he would accomplish. When the scourge and the fists landed upon him, his love for his tormentors was great and awesome. Sometimes we think maybe just of his resurrection. That's pretty much the awesome part. Like it's kind of sad and then happy. You know, his di- he died, oh, that's awful, and then he rose from dead. Great! But the fact is, Jesus was glorious, great and awesome in his self-control and in his suffering, as, mu- as well as in his resurrection and his glory. Saying, Father, he f- forgive them. They know not what they do. He makes the same plea over me and over you. He wants you to experience his forgiveness. He wants you to experience his joy and his peace. Regardless if you're being strung up on a cross or facing discouragement like you've never known before. When we remember and consider all Christ suffered, how he gloriously endured it, we will be comforted, we will find help, we will find refuge in any situation this life brings. Could you please turn to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. After speaking of people who trusted in God, a bit of a motley crew, people who suffered and they were deprived, living in caves and, you know, sawn in half and people who really had bitter experiences because of their faith in God. He says, therefore, in Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, we also Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, 
lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Nehemiah faced hostility. He faced opposition. He faced threat. There was this great warning that was brought from enemy and from friend who said, you guys are up against it. This is going to be really tough. I don't think you can do it. We don't think we can do it. Right? He had it from all sides. He looked to God. He discovered strength amid discouragement. And if you're weary, if you're discouraged today, it's likely you need to consider and remember Jesus again. Because what does it say? For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Remember your great and awesome God. Remember how he endured the hostility that he faced. And yet he went forward with joy, knowing that the victory was his. And blessed are you if his spirit is upon you. Blessed are you if you suffer for his sake, because you will be glorified with him. So we will receive communion together. And I encourage you to respond before the Lord with the things that he has spoken to you through Nehemiah to examine your heart to see if you've given place to discouragement, to fear, to worry, and to realize that we need to look to the Lord and that we don't have to have those old burnt stones of discouragement around anymore. We don't need to be afraid. We can have comfort in our God. He's a great and an awesome God. Let's pray and then I'll have the team come forward.